to just come and open the scriptures with you today. Uh, and I want to spend a few minutes digging into that paragraph out of Ephesians that we uh, read just a moment ago. And uh, the song we actually sang before that, uh, such a, a great song with the words, going to link in a lot with what I want to focus on today. So I wonder whether in those, uh, those moments of boredom that we all seem to have somewhere along the way, whether you've ever pondered how many ridiculous and unexpected things there are in our world. You know, things like designer aged jeans. I actually found out the other day that they use lasers to age the jeans. Now, isn't that ironic? Something so modern to age jeans. Uh, And what's even more ridiculous, of course, is that they tend to charge more for the jeans that look older, right? And then there's the Fruit Loop issue. Did you know that despite all the different colours, that Fruit Loops actually taste exactly the same? Doesn't matter what colour they are, they are the flavour is a mix of orange, lemon and lime juice. That's pretty unexpected. And you've probably heard about ChatGPT, I'm sure you have. Uh, the AI bot that's smart, smart enough to write everything from a poem to a sermon and do a ridiculously good job. I did not use it to write the message today. But there's, uh, maybe to be a bit more serious, uh, and to springboard from what I mentioned about compassion earlier, did you know that the world actually produces enough food to feed every single living person on the planet, but there's still almost 10% of the people who live in extreme poverty? Extreme poverty, that is people living on less than the equivalent, Australian equivalent of about $3.10 a day. That's ridiculous, isn't it? But for a bit of time now, I want us to have a look at something that I reckon is the most ridiculous, unexpected, yet wonderful thing. Something that we all have a chance to own. And as we share it, we'll certainly shape the lives of people around us and the life of our church. Have you ever pondered how ridiculous it is that the creator of the universe, the everlasting, the all-powerful God, would choose messy, sin-filled people like us to do his work here on earth. I wonder whether you would be that trusting. Would you be that reckless? I think, knowing us, that we'd have some pretty serious trust issues, uh, even with ourselves, let alone those people sitting around us right now, maybe. We're going to have a quick flyover uh, at that passage in Ephesians, circling around to have a look at a few key words and phrases that Paul uses repeatedly. And as we do so, I trust that you're going to see that God loves us despite what we were, that Jesus was sent to show us that love, and also see that our response to that love should look like something specific. So can I encourage you, grab your Bible, grab your Bible app, and uh, we'll have a bit of a dig into Ephesians. But first of all, let's pray. Father, I want to pray that you would guide my words today. I pray that we would all have open hearts and open minds, that we'll be ready to receive something of your truth today. And Lord, that we would not leave this place without a new challenge in our lives. Amen. Now, I'm a little bit aware of the journey that your church has been on in the recent months. Uh, In some ways, not too dissimilar to the journey that Christ Life, our church, has been on in the last few years. In our church, in a relatively short amount of time, we lost our pastor and others in our leadership team. Uh, People left in droves, decimating our congregation size. And it was hard. It was really hard. 
And while your journey is not the same as our journey, I'm sure that there are some hurts that we have in common. So I trust that I can bring you some encouragement today. Encouragement in your journey and most importantly, encouragement in the Lord who loves every single one of you incredibly much. So let's jump into Ephesians and let's start with a little bit of context. When we look at Acts 19, we see that Paul visited Ephesus and that he was there for a couple of years. When he first went in there, he found 12 men who believed, but they actually didn't have a whole lot of knowledge about Christ. Like I said, Paul stayed there for about two years. In that time, he started in the synagogue for about three months, and then he met with those 12 men, and he taught them, and he trained them. And the Spirit moved in some pretty incredible ways. And the Bible actually says that the name of Jesus was held up in honour after those couple of years. But Ephesus was the home of Artemis' temple. Artemis was the god of goddess of the hunt, of nature, of childbirth, of fertility, and a whole lot more. It was a beautiful building that was built for that goddess. But interestingly, the people who were worshipping her were, were worshipping the creation and not the creator. But she was the most wild, wild, widely, maybe wildly, widely worshipped goddess in Ephesus. And Ephesus actually claimed her as her own. It was also a place of sorcerers and idol makers. Now, the letter to the Ephesians, it's a little bit different from Paul's other letters. It doesn't seem to have been written to one single church, but to a broader collection of believers, kind of like a, uh, an email that's been cc'd to a whole bunch of people. And in doing that, it actually brings a really strong focus on the life of the individual believer and the family of the church, the community of believers. It's a letter that reminds us that God's work is purposeful and that it doesn't end. It's worked out through each one of us as his chosen people. So God's purpose for you and for me is the same purpose that he has always had for his people. To worship him. To enjoy the privilege of entering into his presence individually and corporately. And to share him with others. Now Charles Spurgeon, who is clearly a whole lot more wise than me, says this about the book of Ephesians. The epistle to the Ephesians is the complete body of divinity. In the first chapter, you have the doctrines of the gospel. In the next, you've got the experience of the Christians. And before the epistle finishes, you've got the precepts of the Christian faith. Whoever would see Christianity in one treaty, let him read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the epistle to the Ephesians. Seems like the perfect book to explore whether we are in times of struggle or in times of strength. So, together, let's read, mark our Bibles, learn together, and digest what God will say to us through the book today. In the first chapter, before the passage that we read just a while ago, Paul tells us that we are blessed to be blessings, uh, that these blessings come from the heavenly realms, that we're blessed in Christ, that we're blessed through Christ, and we are blessed to be Christ to each other through the spirit that indwells in us as Christians. 
And Paul's just so excited that God's people are blessed that he kind of bursts forth with praise to God. He kind of gushes with thankfulness and makes sure that his thankfulness is directed where it should go, to the living God. And we should be doing the same. What are you thankful for today? Who are you thankful for today? As you look around this group of Christ followers that meets here, I trust that your heart actually swells with thankfulness like Paul's did. Where's God at work here? Where can you be thankful for the grace of God extended to you and to others? So let me encourage you to take time to encourage each other. And be specific in your encouragement. Text them. Phone them. Heck, even do that old-fashioned thing and speak to them face-to-face. Remember the command in Colossians 4 to make the most of every opportunity, to be gracious in speech. The goal is to bring out the best in others in conversation, not put them down, not cut them out, and certainly not to put the focus on ourselves. Put God in the middle of those conversations. Now, Paul's so wrapped up in his thankfulness that in that first chapter, from verse 15 right through to the end, it's kind of written as one really long sentence. I'm not sure if he had a scribe writing things down, but you can almost imagine the poor bloke in there frantically scratching away as Paul just goes on and on with thanks for the Ephesians. Maybe there's a challenge there for us to ponder whether Paul would actually be as passionate in his praise for us in the church today as he was for the Ephesians. And if not, why not? And the answer to that, for every single one of us, when we're actually really honest with ourselves, it's because of our sinfulness, right? And yet to balance the picture appropriately, we also know that just like the Ephesians, our sinfulness has been dealt with on the cross so that we can sit in that beautiful place of faith and hope with the assurance that God looks at us with merciful thankfulness. And it's that beautiful place of despite, despite who I am, despite what I have done and continue to fail to do, despite my background, despite whatever excuses I can come up with, I can have confidence and assurance. But if you're sitting here today, if you're watching in and you're not sure that you feel confident and assured about your eternity, let me encourage you, listen in as we explore more of what God has done for everybody through Christ's death and resurrection. So let's get into the passage. Have a look at what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1 and 3 to begin with. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit that's now at work in those who were disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We see so much sinfulness in the world, don't we? Sometimes it feels like our our whole world, our whole society, the culture in which we live is kind of hurtling towards the very gates of hell with lust and longing for what they believe it's going to give them. I don't need to list the sinful choices. You know it. You see it in the world around you every single day. It's those people around us, isn't it, 
It's the sinful choices being made by increasingly sinful individuals. But there is a problem with that kind of thinking. We can too easily place sin at the feet of others when ultimately what's wrong with the world is you and me. And it's always been that way. Back in 1910, the London Times ran a series of articles written by eminent writers and thinkers of the day and they asked the question and then they answered the question of what is wrong with the world? In response, G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton wrote a simple letter that said, Dear Sirs, I am your sincerely G.K. Chesterton. And he was right, of course. And by extension, all of us, all of humanity, we are what's wrong with the world. That, in short, is the real problem of the world, past, present, and no doubt into the future. Sinfulness is not just a problem in the lives of those we see around us, but with us as well. Remember, all have sinned and fallen short of the kingdom of God. Look again at what Paul says in verse 1 of the passage. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. It applies to all of us. Chesterton, Chesterton's response then is actually the response of everyone who's grasped the significance of Jesus and his sacrificial death as the Lamb of God. It's understanding and accepting the despite. Like I said, it's always been that way. The thread through all of Scripture, from Genesis through the Old Testament, right through to the predictions of Revelation, is both man's sinfulness and God's grace and forgiveness. Those of us who are Christians have a significant role to play in continuing that thread. Our job as individuals, your job as a body of believers here, is to look for every opportunity that God gives you to speak of both sinfulness in the world and most importantly, of God's grace and forgiveness. And to do that with as much love as we can, to imitate God's love for us. And Paul's not being subtle here. He makes it ridiculously clear that every single one of us is deserving of God's wrath, his anger and his punishment. And it's not like sin is just making us a little bit sick. We are dead in our transgressions and sins. It's not a disease that's contagious. It's congenital, right there in us from birth. And it will kill us. Every single one of us deserve, is deserving of death because of the sin that is within us. And so the question needs to be asked, could there ever be an antidote to sin, to death? And thankfully, those of us who know God, we know that there is. Look at what it says in verse 4 and 5. But because of the great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace that you have been saved. Don't you love a sentence that begins with, but? It kind of gears up for the antinote, saying, yes, all of these things are a reality, but there's more to the story. And the more, or the despite is wrapped up in two of the most beautiful words in the Bible, grace and mercy, like we sang about before. And these words, mercy and grace, should always be sitting on our lips. 
the tip of our tongues ready to be explained to those who are in need of hearing the all-important aspects of God's character. These are the things that God longs to give to all of humanity. This passage is actually a reminder of what God said about himself when he passed in front of Moses in Exodus 34. The Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him proclaiming his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Mercy might best be translated as full of compassion. It's the same word used in Psalm 78 where it says, but he, that's God, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yes, many a time he turned his anger away and didn't stir up his wrath. This is mercy or compassion in action. God's heart is to act, to move, to reach out, to pursue. And of course, that action is available to all that he calls his own. But that action is the greatest act of grace. And here, the idea of kind of bending down, stooping to give kindness to an inferior, or we might use the word bestow to describe the gift of grace. Grace is giving to the undeserving. And we as Christians know better than anyone just how undeserving we are of God's grace, as well as the pure joy of being able to receive it as a precious gift, that precious gift that it is, a gift freely given at the moment of our salvation. And I trust that you will always strive to walk that tightrope of receiving what is not deserved while never cheapening it by relying on grace as an antidote to willful sinfulness. As we read on, Paul zeroes in on the salvation work of Christ. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us through Jesus Christ. Because of the ridiculously great love that God has for us, he sent Christ to make us alive even when we were dead in our sins. And even more, we are raised up with Christ. We're given the right to the kingdom of God and the joy of participating in God's kingdom here and now through the Spirit's work in us, as well as the joy of anticipating an eternity of life after we breathe our last breath here on earth. And then Paul makes sure that we are reminded again that this great love from God has got a name. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Our rescue from sin Our redemption, salvation, our assurance of eternity is not something that we can achieve. It's a gift from God, something that only God can do for us. The simple fact is there is nothing that we can contribute to our salvation. And if we could, it would no longer be a gift. It would no longer be grace. 
But it is so easy for us to try, isn't it? So easy for us to find ourselves in that place where we think we need to work for our salvation. It's ridiculous how hard it can be to receive this gift from God and leave it at that. Maybe it's because we actually know that grace is such a huge thing. Paul tells us that it is incomparable. So how big is this grace? Going back to what Spurgeon says, God has as much grace as you can want. And he has a great deal more than that. The Lord has as much grace as a whole universe will require, but he has vastly more. He overflows. All the demands that can ever be made on the grace of God will never impoverish him or even diminish his store of mercy. Paul finishes the paragraph to the Ephesians, this paragraph to the Ephesians, with a reminder. We are God's handiwork. We're created to respond to God's grace. Now the word there uh, that's translated as handiwork is the word poema. And it's, uh, it's actually a verb. It means to work or to make. And it literally means a thing created. We actually get our English word poem from it. Those of us who've put our trust in Christ and are willing to be shaped by God, we're actually like a masterpiece of poetry. And that poetry is being written every single day, day by day in our lives. How is the poem written? Well, the first line is written when we let Christ make us a completely new creation. And the rest of the Christ life poem in our lives is actually written by letting God shape us, partly through the, the good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do. But let's be really careful here. Let's be careful not to fall into the trap of doing these good works, even if God has prepared them for us, so that we can feel like we are deserving of God's grace. Remember, we don't do these things to receive God's grace. We actually do them to respond to God's grace. Our actions have got to be driven by thankful love. In other words, we don't do God's will because of a transaction, but we do it because of a relationship. Because a transaction, well, it's all about payment and receipt. But a relationship, well, you know it's all about a response and it's about intimacy. Our actions and choices can never be a way of transacting something from God. Remember, we can't earn the grace that he gives us. It has to be freely given, or it's no longer grace. But we can and we should respond to God because of our relationship with God, and that that relationship drives us to love him and want to show him that we're thankful for the grace gift that we've been given, and that we want to please him, and that we want to be grateful and do gratefully the things that he's called us to do, the things he's already planned in advance for us to do. I want to look at two more words in the passage, and that's the words, in advance. Even before we were born, God had a plan and a purpose for our lives. Time and again, he opens doors for us that leads us to new and sometimes ridiculous and unexpected opportunities. And when we respond to those opportunities, well, then we get stretched and we grow. 
We're blessed. And God's purpose and work here on earth is actually carried out through us. God goes ahead of every single one of us. His timing is often a whole lot different from ours, filled with greater patience than we would probably have. How is your patience in this season? What might God be teaching you while you wait? In what ways are you tempted to run ahead of God and and possibly even presume you know his plan? One thing we can be sure of is that Jesus wants us to grow in every situation. And that's something that I find really challenging. So we grow so that our growth will subsequently bring growth in others, both inside and outside our churches. Who you are, individually, corporately, it's being refined all the time. So maybe God's trust in us as humans is not so ridiculous after all. The call on you as a church is to remain aware of the fact that you are in a new normal. Don't fall into the trap of resting on your laurels while you wait for a pastor or the next thing to happen. Be all that God wants you to be right now. The work of God is real and ongoing and it's as fresh today as it was at any time in the past. You all know people who were dancing on the puppet strings of the devil, who were slaves to their own desires, who were dead in their sin. But we know that the gospel will bring them alive. In God's grace and mercy, he will give you the opportunity to be his hands and his feet, to be the reality of God's love to others. And let me pause for a moment and say this. If you've not let God make you alive in him yet, do that now. Find out more. Ask an elder. Ask someone you trust. Find out more about God's grace and God's mercy. Before I finish up, I want to leave you with a challenge. And believe me, it's one that I actually need to get really real with as well. If we know that God has shown us grace and mercy, if we know that he has saved us for the purpose of doing good works and that those works were planned in advance for us to do, us specifically to do, are you willing to stop right here, right now, and ask God what he wants you to do for him today, this week, this month, to let God write the next life line in your life poema? Are you ready to allow God to drop a name in your mind or a situation he wants you to walk into or pray into or to bring you back to the work of compassion? Uh, Is a missional activity something that he needs you to engage in? Are you ready to act for him in the middle of the ridiculously unexpected that he has placed you in? We're going to take a moment and do that now. Let's pray. Father, your word is so clear. Your grace and your mercy are freely available. Help us never to work because we think we have to own it. But Father, you've called us, those who know you, you've called us to stand in the gap, to be your hands and your feet, to be your people working here in this place. 
in this town, in this country, in this world. So Lord, we invite you in this moment we're going to take now. Speak to us. Give us your words of encouragement and mission for our lives. Father, you're good and you're great. Thank you for sending Christ to live as an example, to die on a cross, to take the sins of every single one of us and cover them with his blood so that we can stand pure and holy and sinless before God on the first day of our eternity after we breathe our last here. Father, encourage us, embolden us to be your people at work here on your earth. Amen. Thanks, Dave, and, and yeah, what a great uh, encouragement and reminder from Ephesians 2. Um, those words are such a, uh, from Ephesians 2, is such a great description of how God has saved and is saving his people, bringing them.